from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios on beautiful Locust Walk on a finely fall-feeling November morning, November 1st. Happy birthday to my sister, come to think of it, Julie Massey-Hoffman. And we are going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Kate Massey this morning. Shane and Eric, good morning to you. How you doing? Good morning. I am doing great. Looking forward to the show. You guys listening can join the show. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us Matt Dots, producer Matt Dots, boss man Maddie on the computer and the phones. You can email him businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Businessradio at cirrusxm.com. That's an especially good way to catch us if you're listening. One of the times we're replayed, we're replayed four or five times over the course of the week. You can catch us that way or live. Drop us an email real time. We'll answer the email during the show. You can follow us on Twitter at wmoneyball at wmoneyball. We tweet on sports analytics over the course of the week oh my goodness gracious we got some things going on in the world of sports right now what gentlemen i know what it is but i'm going to ask anyway what recently has caught your eye well i mean we have a game seven in the world series and so you know there's a lots of things to think about from a statistical perspective about it so one is you know um, non-stationarity. Notice, Shane, how I'm learning. <laughs> the question is whether the team that wins Game 6 is more likely to win Game 7. Um, there actually have been, I think, I looked it up this morning, there's been 14 instances of it. And you know what? 7-7. Seven and seven. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, so there is actually none. Um, I also looked at 538 actually wrote a recent article about home field advantage in the playoffs versus uh, the regular season. Specific to baseball. In all sports, actually. Um, And what's interesting about that analysis, but let's start with the baseball one. Um, The baseball one, at least in the regular season, the home team wins 54% of the games. Mm -hmm. In the playoffs, in the baseball, the home team wins 54.2% of the games. So there is about a, you know, if you just went by base rates, this isn't game sevens, this is just all home games, you'd say, at least just historically, the Dodgers are a 54 to 46 advantage, um, which, I mean, I I don't know if you want to consider that big, small, whatever it is, um, it's not zero, but... I, I don't think that would, would you agree? Let me ask I a mean, question. Would certainly you, after the fact, we're not going to be able to distinguish that fifty-four. So, so, yeah, from we might as well. 50, we, we want to know. We're, we're interested. But in is the that a reasonable base rate? Want, is that I a reasonable one, base rate? I want rate? one additional factor. I want that for interleague play. Did, is, is that what you said? I missed the. No, 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 no. It's just regular season okay, versus. But not. doesn't interleague? Shouldn't it be greater for interleague play? That's a good um, question. Well, I guess the, the, going the, the other way. I mean, the, I, all right. So I mean, yes, you could argue that like somehow. Because, you know, that the Dodgers pitchers are somehow more used to hitting than the Astros yeah, and, pitchers. And the managers are more accustomed and, to and, you know, all the switches. Well, how about, how about the following? Let's imagine we take the two teams' strengths just as a proxy, the number of games they won. It's not a great proxy, but it's not a horrible proxy. So the Dodgers are at 104. The Astros are at 101. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, remember, that Astros 101 is with a DH. So could one, maybe this is part of Cade's point, could one make an argument that 
Now, the Astros are not a 101-win team. I mean, in other words, if you take away one of their hitters, maybe they're a worse offensive team. I think we all agree with that. They're definitely a worse offensive team than they were during the season. The Dodgers played 104 games, so maybe there's a little bit of edge because the Dodgers are used to playing without, you know, a DH. Yeah, that that's possible. I think, you know, the the specific kind of, you know, matchups and stuff like that are more important. What would that. move you off the base rate of 54 to 46, which is what that, you know, that's just an empirical, it's not a, there's no model. That is the empirical number of times the home team wins. I just want to know empirical for interdivision play, inter- interleague play. Yeah, we, I don't know have, the number. We have it I, at this point. This is a noble thing. I, I don't know the no, number. You, you want empirical, not just for interleague play, but inter- empirical for interleague play when the NL team is the home team. Because that's the most relevant for this particular World Series, yeah, right? Though, yeah, though I'd, I'd settle or game for game seven. I'd settle for I'd settle for whether there's a difference. Inter, okay, interleague versus. Well, I, I did tell you the stat at least for the World Series, which is nothing. But so, no, so it's just small sample. I understand that, but I'm just anything. saying. That, yeah, nah, we don't know overall. Infer, okay, let's set aside home field advantage and talk about one what we've seen so far in this World Series, because most people are just riveted by it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the balls are clearly juiced. We can all just kind of <laughs> agree on that. Um, or the game's and, changed. I mean, we've talked well, so much on the show over the last year or two about how the game has changed. I, I like it to, has. I like to actually... By the balls being juiced, for example. <laughs> I like to That's actually... one specific change. I like to actually go back to what Rick Peterson said on our show last week, how... The results can actually come down to, you know, we just want you to be 5% better. So if you think about last night's game, uh, you know, uh, Verlander was great. And then he made a couple mistakes, and all of a sudden, instead of being there up one nothing, and he's got eight strikeouts, and, you know, it looks like he's unhittable, all of a sudden, they're down 2-1. to one. So I have to admit, as I was watching it, I was thinking about Rick Peterson's comment last week about the margin of error in these games is so low that you throw 90 pitches, 100 pitches, you could throw 88 pitches exactly where you want, two pitches where you don't. Now, all of a sudden, Verlander gets the loss well, in this yeah. game. And, and, and remember, I mean, that, that's, I think, the thing that's point, is stuck out to me. And I, I, this is, I mean, you could turn this into an empirical question, but I, I, don't, I don't know if it's empirically true or not. But it certainly seems to me like I have not watched a playoff series where um, – a greater number of pitcher mistakes have been taken advantage of. Agreed. I mean, I, I just don't think the the pitchers have not gotten away. A sing, every single mistake a pitcher has made has been no. just rocked out of the park or turned into something right. by these hitters. And that's that's incredible to watch. So remember that Rick was making that comment on the heels of Game 1 last week where Keuchel threw a great game. Yeah. Great but, game. but made up, you know, two mm-hmm. or three yep. mistakes, which was motivating Rick's comment. So this is the second game in this series we've seen a great outing by the Astros starter yep. with just a couple of mistakes. But as yeah. Shane is saying, those mistakes were exploited. Fully. Yeah. And I, I mean, I Kershaw's put, starts of, I mean, Kershaw's second start, at least, was the same way. I mean, Kershaw pitched a great game. You wouldn't know it from the Kershaw line. got chased. He didn't pitch a great game. He pitched a great four innings four or inning whatever. Game. But then that fifth inning wasn't like it wasn't like the Keiko and um, Verlander and Verlander starts because it was more than just two pitches. Because those guys even threw a couple of bad pitches and kept on working through it. Actually, I, I didn't. Did Verlander stay on it, or did he? Or did they pull him after that? He pitched through seven innings. Yeah. yeah. So they, they they threw a couple of bad pitches and worked through it. And and Kershaw kind of. There was that momentum, you know. He got a guy on base, and then kind of unraveled. It was just this weird, slowly. I mean, that was thing. mostly. I, I guess I, rem- I think back to that 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 second Kershaw game and think more about the bullpen, right? I mean, 
it, I, the, the team was still winning. I think the Dodgers were still winning when it's Kershaw also, left. The other thing I was thinking about, I'd love. No, I think that, were they or they yeah. were they were even. Well, whatever he he. It, he, he, I mean, maybe it's not it's not as clean of a yeah. you know fit to this particular narrative as the as the Verlander game. And this is certainly. obviously something you can do through whether it's looking at things like um, you know whether it's an ELO rating or some sort of statistical rating. I have to admit, I'm looking at these 200 win teams, and in baseball that doesn't happen all the time. Matter of fact, 200 win teams it almost never happens. Has, they haven't played in the series since like 70 or something. Correct. So but almost 50 years. Yeah, but I'm just saying, do you look at these teams, Shane, and say? Oh man, these are historically great teams. I don't. I don't. But they, not, that's not the point. The point is there's two almost historically great teams. No, no, no. But my point is, while this is a historic, I believe this is a historically great, entertaining, interesting World Series. It's not like I say to myself. But what would what, you? What would you rather have? What would you rather have? What, like a 110 win, historically great team in a 4-0 run through the World Series, or two? I mean, it's probably what's a better team. What's a better team that you've seen in the last 20 years? Well, I think more about it's a good question. So I think more about starting pitching. So for example, it, let's take a, a you know, I hate pointing this team out because it beat the Yankees in 2001, but let's imagine you had Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling pitching four games of the World Series against either of these teams in 2001 for the Diamondbacks. Which team are you taking in that series? Just because of the strength of the is pitching. Is Byung Young Kim still closing against uh, like the Houston Astros, for example? Well, that's a, that's a challenge. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a challenge. I'll, I'll, I'll take whoever's playing how against about the that. Reds, how about the Red Sox? One of the you know the Red Sox teams with Pedro Martinez and I don't know whoever else. What other other pitchers you want there? I mean, I mean, yes. I, I mean, I can certainly list. I could probably list five or ten great teams in the last twenty years. I think would maybe be in this conversation, but I'm not sure I would pick them over what's going on in either Houston or LA right now. And then put them together. This yeah. is the thing. We've had yeah. some great, great teams in the last fifty years, clearly. But to have two is, yeah. the, is the unusual thing, and for them to go back and forth like this, and then we've got these two different kinds of games. We got the pitcher duels, and we've got these home run derbies. Yes, I mean it's it's there's something here. I, for I, everybody. I, yeah, again, I I don't know how many times I've been watching these games and been like, okay, well, wow, that was that that's a that three now that the game's over, and I, I I trick myself every time because. In conventional thinking, you hit like a you you go up by three on some massive home run in the seventh inning. The game right, the is probably over. over, but not in these games. And I mean, then it's like repeatedly yeah. not over. What's also, yeah. and then it flips the other sides down yeah. by three, and it's not over. What also you know the statistical work is pointing out for this World Series is kind of the how much worse, for example, Houston's hitting on the road oh versus gosh, what they're hitting right. at home, and also even the extremely high win percentage of the home team in the MLB right, this time. Because right. as we pointed out, in general, these are 50, well, 54-46. Right. It's been a lot different than 54-46. So I, I want to I come back to something we talked about last week, which was the conventional rhythm around pitching versus hitting in the World Series. So let's go, let's take a, go back in the time machine and hear what Eric had to say this time last week. Which would you rather have? Great pitching or great hitting? How many runs did the Yankees score in the last two games against Houston? I don't remember if the total was one run or two runs, but great pitching in the postseason beats great hitting. It's happened every year. It always happens every year. <laughs> All right, Eric, what's, what's your take on that, on that now, a uh, week later? After these home run derbies. I still stand by that statement, which is, is right? when pitchers are making their pitches, you're seeing even a great hitter like Altuve um, cannot hit the ball. And, you know, the, it's I haven't seen guys, rarely have I seen in this series, great 
hits off great pitches. Most of the time, it's mistakes being made. Yeah, but but but, but, but I mean, mistakes are part of great versus not great pitching. I don't know how you separate out these things. Yeah, I mean, the team with better pitching tends to win more often than the team with less great pitching. But also the team with great hitting tends to win more often than the team with less great hitting. Saying, it's almost by construction. Well, no. So, I mean, you'll take... Which would you rather have? So let's say the following. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a team in the World Series, let's say, with a 280 batting average, 290 batting average, obviously historically very high for a team, but let's say a 4.0 ERA as a team... Or a team with a 260, 270 batting average, but a 3.2 team ERA. Are that, those, I mean, assuming those are the same, say, standard deviation above yeah. the mean, yes. I'm, I think it's a toss-up. I really do. And I love that response because where I'm pushing back on the conventional wisdom, but really I'm pushing back on something even more general, which is our, even our, we're supposed to be calling BS on these narratives, right? This mm-hmm. this show is supposed to call BS on narratives. Yeah. And we sometimes get sucked into narratives. Yeah. And moreover, we call BS on overconfidence all the time. We call BS on overconfidence all the time. We say, don't, don't get too sure of yourself. And then sometimes we get too sure of ourselves. So I just thought it was worth coming back to that statement, which is not that different than many things we've said. And, and I'm not saying it's demonstrably wrong because of what we've seen since, but I do think it's worth revisiting that we get pulled into these narratives and we get pulled into these overconfident statements as well. Everybody does. And I mean, I remember two, three years ago sitting in this exact same spot listening to our, uh, ourselves – I was part of it. Construct this narrative about you know based on the Kansas City Royals that all you need to win in the World Series is amazing shutdown bullpen pitching. <laughs> Remember those heady days where bullpen pitching was clearly the key. Is it the key this year? No, obviously not. Well, it's maybe the key to why some teams are losing. Well, yeah, but they're both equally losing. You know, it's it's. No, I, I, I just... I, after the fact, it's easy to say this is what yeah. caused it. If the question's ex-ante, can we say you definitely want the... I mean, if, you, if you'd rather have Kershaw with three up, and if you believe in the narrative that yeah. bet, pitching beats hitting in the World Series, that is, and, and you say it always happens, then that game can't end the way it did. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, it is... I mean, the, empirically, the way I would like to see this statement supported, I suppose, is, you know, again, kind of go through, you know, sort of like you did with, with NL versus AL. You know, does the you know when you go into the World Series or when you go into a playoff series, the team with the better pitching, as measured by ERA, WHIP, whatever, do that? You know, do they more, win more often than the team that is better at hitting? So you need all these paired comparisons where you're like, here are teams yeah. that are demonstrably yeah. better at hitting versus pitching. Maybe okay. maybe it bears out. I just don't know. What is your assessment of Game Seven, and in particular with Darvish going out back back out there after his horrific outing? I don't think he's had a two inning outing in his career. Yeah, and he did in the World Series like three days ago, four days ago. Well, it depends again on whether the balls are juiced and his slider can slide. Right. I mean, I mean, at least if you believe the narrative of why he. Well, you know, the balls other, aren't going to be differently juiced than they were there. Now they're playing in a different park, right? But he didn't have his stuff that day. Yes, he did not. And psycho—I mean, we're not supposed to get too far down the psychological angle, but it has to be tough to come back after that kind of outing. Yeah, I would also think that it. I think part of the strategy may change, and here's why: maybe Darvish can pitch well, or maybe uh, McCullers can pitch well. Yeah. What do you think they're asking of Darvish? This isn't a no. standard start where they say, look, we need you to go seven innings deep. Right. They may go to him and say, look, today you have three innings. 
throw whatever. I mean, three innings. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for more and, than three and innings. You're saying from you. that'll change his psychology. It absolutely, he'll regulate himself differently. Yeah, not as just a possibly regulate himself, but he may he could knowing pitch differently, he could pitch actually. differently, and and possibly knowing that he's only going to go through the lineup once. Yeah, like so they may be asking him something different, and yeah. that may change the way he approaches the batters. That's right. Who, to whose advantage, Houston or LA, is the fact that that this is the last game and they can throw the entire they can throw the entire pitching staff at it. Does someone benefit from that? I, I mean, mean do you I, want Kershaw to come back out on three days, sure. two days rest yeah. or whatever. You yeah, do? no, I. Um, wow, I, I do. I, yeah, I, I, I think I would too. I, th- I think it works to LA's advantage. I mean, I think it's subtle, um, but I think LA probably, you know, I mean, because they, they also still have a couple bullpen guys that are, you know, a little bit have been a little bit more recently reliable. You know, I, I think it works to LA's advantage, but. It's All pretty right. close. It's good fun, man. Good fun. Oh, my fun. goodness. It's did, been did exciting. Did y'all stay up for game five? I was, I was still yeah. like at 115 watching this game. Yeah, I no, gave up too. on the 10th inning. It's, I didn't. It's kind of wrecked my week a little bit, but, you know, <laughs> you so thank you for that. But... You couldn't turn away. Yeah. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation, 1-844-942-7866. Cade, Shane, and Eric this morning been talking World Series. We, uh, we've got a few more minutes before we're going to catch a break. Guys, the other relatively large event that happened last night was that the College Football Playoff Committee announced their first rankings of the year. This is something we now accept, that midseason they start talking about these things, and it's great for controversy, great for coverage. Did, did you pay any attention to that? Did anything jump I out to you about I actually paid it? a lot of attention to it. I was very interested in it. First of all, it was just interesting that Alabama wasn't number one. I mean, I guess Georgia was number one, which is kind of interesting. Um, that was interesting. Um, of course, we also have the fact that Notre Dame is in the top four. And so, you know, people are starting to play out the doomsday scenario, where, as we've talked about already a little bit, Georgia and Alabama go undefeated to the SEC championship game. There's a close game between the two of them. At least right now, the committee has them as the top two. So we understand that, you know, if Georgia or Alabama wins by three points. It's not like, wow, that team's much better than the other team. You could imagine a scenario where they take both. Notre Dame's an independent, so Notre Dame wins out. They have him as number three right now. If they win out, possibly in convincing fashion, it's hard to jump somebody above them if they have number three. So they're an independent, which means one of the Power Five conferences mm-hmm. has another team that can't make it. And now all of a sudden you have you know, maybe Ohio State, maybe Wisconsin. you got lots of other teams fighting for it. Matter of fact, you could have the defending national champ Clemson win out. And not actually make the playoffs. Possible. Or, it's definitely so, possible. You know, the problem is if you take two teams from one Power Five conference and an independent. Yeah. Well, no, no. Yeah, two no, teams right. from the same conference and an independent. Those are the top three teams. So you're Eric, left with four other conferences fighting for one spot. So that it is, you're, it is quite the doomsday response that the possible. The one I'm hoping the for. The one you're hoping for. But, I mean, you don't need, that's an extreme version. I would push back a little bit because Notre Dame is jumpable. They have jumped teams in the past. It's not like the old AP polls in the 70s where, you know, unless a team loses, Loses they just inexorably move up the poll. Moreover, Notre Dame, a downside of being an independent is that you don't get that conference championship game to bolster your resume. So everybody else is going to have that last weekend and that last big win and their strength of record is the winners of that. The strength of records are going to come up. And I think Notre Dame is actually in in a very precarious position because of that. But actually, a bigger reason is that they have a tougher road between here and there. They've got two big road games. They go to Miami. Big and game. They, and they go to Palo Alto to play Stanford. They 
they will be at least mild favorites in those games, but those are two big road games, and you know probabilities catch up with you eventually. Now, Do we agree that, by the way, the number 9 and 10 teams right now, Wisconsin and Miami, control their own destiny? No, absolutely not. Uh, so you're talking about an undefeated <laughs> Big Ten team, Wisconsin, that could win out, and you're saying they don't control their own destiny. They should probably yeah, but schedule Wisconsin, differently. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they win out against... Who, who against who? Well, they I mean, play Ohio the, I, I, State. They'd have to play Ohio State or Penn State that, in the Big Ten championship game. That would be the only game that that yeah. that, that counts for anything. And th- so you this believe year, an undefeated Wisconsin team might not make the playoffs? An unde- oh, undefeated. If I said they, undefeated. If they beat Ohio State. Yeah, yeah. I said undefeated. I said do Wisconsin and Miami control at nine and ten right now control, as undefeated teams? Do they control their own destiny? Okay, that because I think that's so unlikely. I haven't thought about it very much, but sure, <laughs> sure. I think that I think they're very unlikely to leave out an undefeated Power Five champion over a one loss. Okay, else. Yeah. so what we're saying is, if you really want, so then if you really want to talk about a doomsday scenario, of course Miami winning out would mean Clemson would have a loss. Miami also winning out would mean Notre Dame would have a loss. That's so right. it's going to help those two things. That's right. Um, that would be that. So that's I've now changed my mind. That's my scenario. I want Wisconsin and Miami to win out. I want to be Georgia, Alabama, Wisconsin, and Miami, and everyone else out. Why is that what uh, a doom? Well, I, I mean, that is certainly a scenario. Why? Why would that be <laughs> that one described be as doomsday? doomsday. I mean, well, it's basically there's four power right, conferences. Three. You'd have three because Georgia yeah. and Alabama. You wouldn't have a Pac-12. You wouldn't have a Big Twelve champion. So, you know, people shouldn't – we think Washington is unlikely to make it all the way back. It's just, it's kind of surprising how – it's not – it wasn't surprising to us, but it, it's a little bit surprising that they're as low as they are. They came at number 12. They, 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 like Wisconsin, haven't played anybody. So – and they don't have much room to make it up. They don't play a lot of folks in between now and then. Even in the Pac-12 championship, people aren't going to be as impressed beating Southern Cal, for example. So, but they, you know, they people do think they're a good team. The power rankings still say they're a good team, so they might sneak up there. But they're probably on the outside looking in. The Big Twelve is the most interesting one because you've got you've got three one-loss teams, and there are two games between them that still have to happen, and then a conference championship. So Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and TCU, all of which, if they win those games, because for example, TCU is going to play Oklahoma. Yep, and then they're going to have to go into a Big Twelve championship, a couple of big wins. So they do that, they're going to be in the conversation. Oklahoma State has a chance this weekend. Oklahoma State is playing Oklahoma this weekend, and probably the biggest game of the weekend. They win that, they're going to jump dramatically. So the Big Twelve is still in the mix in in a, in a big way, and we're we're just heading toward this this decision that the committee has to make between a bunch of one loss teams. In fact, we ran we ran the numbers this morning on the number of zero or one loss teams that we expect by the end of the year. This is through the conference championship. So all games played, end of the year, final committee decision. How many teams from Power 5 conferences and uh, and Notre Dame do you expect to be zero or one loss? This is kind of a measure of chaos. So if there are only four, it's boring, right? So if there are four or less, it's kind of boring. And, well, less is interesting. If there's only three, then we different no, questions. It to be about, what, one-third probability according to this, four or less. You might think about it as kind of uniform. It's not quite uniform. It's almost uniform quarter of being really boring four four teams, just slot them right in. A quarter of being five team, this is like a typical committee year, have to decide between two, not that interesting. A quarter percent chance, a quarter probability of six teams, which is getting a little more interesting. You have to leave a couple out. And then I'd, I'd define chaos as seven or more teams with fewer than two losses out of Power Five championships. And we think there's a 25% chance that would happen. Imagine you have an undefeated Alabama and then six one-loss Power Five teams that you have to choose three three in, three out. 
That's yeah. fun. And we think there's a 25%. I mean, our numbers are saying there's a 25% chance that we look at a scenario like that, or, or even worse, seven or eight teams. Right. Good fun. Very what, what, what's good fun. the motivation? Do you? I, I mean, I, I assume that this disagrees with Massey Peabody, for example. What's the motivation for Alabama not being at number one? So, uh, no, well, it depends on it's, it depends on what your criteria are. Okay. So the t- the committee ostensibly is picking the best four teams, but they, they they really work in some deservingness as well. It's kind of a mix between most deserving and best. Mm-hmm. And the a great heuristic that that. ESPN generated last year that that helps cut through that is the, the statistic they call strength of record. So not strength of schedule, strength of record. And you guys will like it. It's it's the probability that an average top 25 team would have won the same number of games or more playing that team's schedule. Mm-hmm. So it combines strength of schedule and the win-loss record. And it does it in a single number that everyone can understand. It's kind of yeah. a, a nice exceedance index. How much did you exceed your expectation? Okay, fair enough. I'm saying it's a form of exceedance. It's a good. It's a it, that's good... a term I've never heard before. Oh, I thought that was a pretty <laughs> standard term. Is like you know, it's. It... I like it. I like it. I'm going to use it more often. <laughs> Either way, it's. Um, I, I think. Let me ask you a question. Do you think? So, r- r- yeah, yeah. Let me finish on that yeah. because I brought it up because Shane asked why Georgia. Was above Alabama, so Georgia has had a, a, a more impressive road to where we are at That's right, right now, and, and and easily they are by far they by far have the strongest strength of record. Something like so the the number is like nine percent. So something like only nine percent, a, a top twenty five team would have had only a nine percent chance to have gone undefeated. Georgia's gone undefeated, so it's mm-hmm. a, an, an especially impressive accomplishment. Yeah, the only thing I was going to talk about was I'm wondering if you end up with the Massey Peabody scenario where Alabama's undefeated and let's say there's six or seven one-loss teams. Do you think then that the committee – this is an interesting statistical question. Will they then rely more, you think, on the, on the let's say, whether it's ELO or Massey Peabody or some other rankings? Like, given that you now ha- – the, the obvious criterion of wins-losses you can't use because there's six teams tied. Yeah. Now we have to look at a tiebreaker in some way. Yeah. Do they then rely more on what I'll call the algorithms and the math when, you know, in some sense, the eyeball test? I don't know. Win-loss. I don't know. So let's, well, let's go to the math. Great. Let's let's. So we we're almost positive they don't go to the math, but they do look at things that correlate with the math. So they they started talking last year about the statistic, something like you know game control. What what percentage of the minutes they've played have they been ahead? Something like that. That that's not a perfect proxy, but it's at least related to how how strong the team is. It's not how you win a Super Bowl though. <laughs> For example, no. Um. But they think about they've they've said explicitly that conference championships are a tiebreaker. They said last night that they consider head to head. So they had to, they had to rank Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Penn State. They can consider them all kind of comparable resumes. They broke the tie by saying, "Look, OU beat Ohio State, and Ohio State beat Penn State. So we're going to run them in there as whatever it was, five, six, seven. So they you know they just keep on bringing they keep on bringing these different rules and different criteria. It's not one thing. I think they do try to get best. Last year, in choosing between Ohio State and Penn State, Penn State had beaten Ohio State and won the Big Ten, but they chose Penn State. One of the big arguments was they just believed Ohio State was the better team. And it was sufficiently better team that the head-to-head tiebreaker didn't, didn't apply. Let me ask you a question. From a, from a, I don't even call it, let's call it a fairness point of view. I'm not sure fairness is the right word. Let's imagine you handed somebody on the committee a set of numbers without team names on it. Like, he, whatever numbers they're given, here they are. And you ask them, well, let's Wonderful. say the team, yeah, names, no, team names are not on. A blind, a blind resume. A blind resume. 
And you said to them right now, let's imagine at the end of the season, this was the numbers. So we're sitting here, whatever, there's three, four weeks to go. Here are the numbers of those teams. I want you to make your decision right now who you would pick. It's a blind resume, and I'm asking you to say, because these are the numbers you're going to have, which team would you pick? Wouldn't that be a fairer, I'll call it less passionate, you know, getting swept up? Why not play out that hypothetical now, get their importance weights elicited from them now on a blind resume system, and let's use that. Assuming those numbers captured everything I, you I, would want to capture, yeah, I, I, right? That's what I mean, I'm conditioning that, that, on that. that. I mean, I, I mean, you know, this committee does bring in the eyeball test, which isn't on the paper. But let's. Ass- so, I, I think Shane's point is a great. This one committee you, brings in a subjective interpretation of all the relevant information, and, and, and by that you mean a hundred dimensions, yeah. only some of which they're explicitly thinking about. Right. But it's that it's that highly dimensional. Yeah. But I love Eric's suggestion because one of the things you could do if you really wanted this this committee to be more systematic and a little bit more analytical, don't impose a system on them. Go pull their judgments out and then systematize their judgments and provide them back to them. So, for example, you could take Eric's idea, do the blind resume thing with whatever, 20 dimensions, and say rank them. Rank these and and have all the committee members and then run a model of their judgment. So it's just their judgment. You're not imposing anything. Right. You're You're just rendering their judgment from these things. And then you could feed back to them what that model would suggest. And so now you've 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 knocked out all the idiosyncratic weights and noise and you've just used their judgment in a pure and consistent way and you would say, look, you don't have to do this, but this is what the model that of, of you, you the right. model of you would so that's kind of algorithmic guidance that that increasingly organizations. How would you are actually using. fit that algorithm though? Like how would you kind of combine their would judgments rank, together? Rank, it's ranked data. You could build a model. You could build a probability model for ranked data. Shane's asking combining a committee of twelve. It's in one one level more complicated because you've got twelve different. You could model up each and blur, or you could model the group as a whole. Take the aggregate judgments and model that. One of those two ways. Yeah, I would probably feel more comfortable modeling each individual because of the heterogeneity that's likely to be there and the weights that people are different putting. And then, but then it's a different question. Even if you, even if those people chose to follow those, how does that lead to an aggregate solution yeah. mm-hmm. when you have I don't know if it's twelve members each with different yeah. rank orderings and you know they're not all going to have the same one to four? Then we can have a different discussion yeah. about. But by the way, that would be a great data set to have going forward. Imagine, and they're blind too. I don't know which of the twelve judges has which rank ordering but and then we have the final rankings imagine we were able to understand how consensus is built from a set of group judges and then over that, time we could actually see which ju- which of these i mean again they're blind, cares blind. Yeah. yeah i agree with that but for the moment i want to make it blind so that all of this can be done so real quickly one comment we massey peabody in our in our projections have needed some model of the committee and so for the first time we actually model the committee and our predictions, we got the four. We got the right four. Purely algorithmically, we got the top four, though we, though we flipped Notre Dame and Clemson, which we're happy about. But you go through the 25, and there are some big changes. It's tough to do in three or four parameters what these guys are using, 20 dimensions and a bunch of rules and a lot of context for. But if you're going to do projections, you need to have it algorithmic. But I want to make one last point, and then we're going to have to run away to break. They're not blinded resumes. Which teams benefit from not being blinded? And I think there's really only one that I think is 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 has got maybe a finger on the scale going forward, and that's Notre Dame. I I mean, um, it's I'll say it's the same comment as pitching beats good hitting. Maybe that's true. 
I don't know. If, if we're going to bring up Michael, maybe that's true. But, yes, if you had asked me, I would have said the same thing. I would have said Notre Dame. Well, it's interesting because they don't get the conference championship bump. So they might be. you might think they'd be penalized by that. But I, I kind of suspect they're getting some conference championship credit. Because of Notre Dame. I know, but boy, oh boy, if you know, if it comes down as you pointed out, Cade, to that last weekend, and one of the teams with also with one loss has a really impressive win against another one loss team, it's hard to imagine them not jumping Notre right. Dame, and right. that's why they're so vulnerable. They're like, vulnerable imagine an now. Oklahoma with a dominating win in the Big Twelve championship game against another one loss Big Twelve that's team. Right. How are they not going to jump that's Notre right. Dame? It's right. tough. All right. Well, that has been the first quarter of the show. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. Some combination of us are here. This morning it's Shane, Eric, and Cade. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Music from sound engineer Danielle Bruno. I understand it's Danielle's birthday today. Second birthday shout-out. Happy birthday to you, Danielle. Couldn't do this show without you, as we demonstrated a couple weeks ago, by the way. <laughs> uh, we're, we're just off of an open lines conversation. We covered World Series, Game 7 a little bit, College Football Playoff Committee. We're going to come back to some of that stuff in the last half hour of the show, certainly football, probably a little ba- baseball. But in the next half hour, we have a guest segment, as we usually do. And delightfully, our guest is in studio. Ben Falk is here. Ben Falk is here in the flesh. Ben is the owner of CleaningTheGlass.com. CleaningTheGlass.com is a subscription service. Falk runs providing stats, NBA stats, research and analytical articles about basketball. Before his entrepreneurial stint there, he was VP of Basketball Strategy with the Sixers here in Philly. And before that, Basketball Analytics Manager with the Trailblazers. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, man. Glad to see you. Tell us a little bit about how you got going. Before we know, before we hear about what you're doing now, how, how did you even get going? So you, you, you've had two jobs here that a lot of folks in the analytics community would kill for, working with teams. So your first position was with the Trailblazers? How, how, how'd that happen? Yes, yeah, so I can back up and tell a little bit of a longer story. I mean, the, the short answer is right place, right time, mm-hmm. um, which I think is true for a lot of this, these kind of situations. Yep. Um, but essentially, uh, when I was in high school, I got I was really into fantasy basketball, mm-hmm. and the problem for me was that it just wasn't real enough, right? It was it was a little bit too fake. It wasn't what it was like to be a general manager, and so I decided I wanted to change that. Uh, so I made I decided I wanted to make a new game, right? A fantasy basketball game that was more realistic. Okay. And to do that, I had to learn how to make a website, and I had to learn how to get basketball stats, and I had to learn how to store those stats and display those stats and analyze those stats. And you're like 16. <laughs> right, so yeah, Jeez. so I started okay. down that path. So I taught myself you know, how to make a website, I taught myself some computer programming, and you start going down that path, and pretty soon you realize those are the skills that you use in a job for a team. Okay. Um, and so you know, I had, in the process of trying to make that game more realistic and better, I had stumbled on a listserv uh, that was a basketball analytics listserv that had all the leaders of the field uh, at that time in it. So Dean Oliver and Roland Beach and John Hollinger and Kevin Pelton. Jeez. You know, none of them had jobs at that point. It was still pretty new. 
Um, what year are we talking about? So this would be in around like 2003. Wow, this is the beginning. And those were the, the guys that created it. That's amazing. Right. Okay, Exactly. And so, you know, they were all just talking amongst each other, yeah. trying to figure this out. And so I was lucky enough to find that. And I just paid attention, read, asked some questions for a while, eventually started contributing. Um, by the time I was a freshman in college, Dean Oliver had been, uh, he had worked first for the Seattle Supersonics. And at this time, he was with the Denver Nuggets. Um, and so at one point he just posted on there, I'm looking for an intern. Mm-hmm. So I saw that and immediately wrote to him mm-hmm. and say, I'll be your intern. And he said, well, I can't pay you. I said, that's fine. <laughs> so um, I ended up volunteering for him through the summer. And at the end of the summer, he, he said, okay, well, I guess the school year's starting. You probably have to go back to your schoolwork. And for me, my foot was in the door and I was not, you know, it was open a crack. I was not giving that up. And so I said, I'll keep working through the school year. So mm-hmm. I, I kept working for him. Where were you in school? So I was at University of Maryland. Okay. Um, and so I kept working for him until uh, my beginning of my junior year when the Trailblazers called him and they were looking for somebody uh, to work part-time uh, for them. And he gave him my name. I interviewed and they hired me part-time for my last years of college, and then when I graduated, I moved out there and worked full-time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's stunning to me how similar so many of those stories are. You know, I think they're very low-probability events in any given person's life, but there's a, definitely a theme. At least in this generation of analysts, there's a theme. And it always involves the Internet, by the way. Right. There's like blogging and community and people just doing the work. They're guys that are just like putting work out there, and it gets people's attention. Right. For sure. And I'll just say, you know, when I say right place, right time, that's a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think there's I think it's a chapter in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, that Mm -hmm. always stood out to me when he says, if you look at some measure of the richest people of all time, um, that like five of the top 10 came from the same decade in the same place, which was born, I think, somewhere around like 1840s America, Mm -hmm. because they came of age at the perfect confluence of Mm -hmm. events Mm -hmm. where you know, the Industrial Revolution was taking off, but a laissez-faire government. And so you had this situation that was perfectly ripe for mm-hmm. incredible wealth. And I think about that a lot when I think about my situation. How does somebody like me get into the NBA? And a lot of it is this perfect storm of mm-hmm. the world changing more towards data, computing power rising, but also at the right time in my life mm-hmm. where I could, you know, I had time being in high school and college to explore these things. Yep. I was in college so I could volunteer. I didn't have to take a paying job. And it kind of all just came together that's such a that's out. such a wise and humble attribution. That sounds exactly right, and and it seems unusual to have people with that perspective. That's great. So yeah, Ben, as a parent of a seventeen year old that's very similarly interested in such things, how does somebody? You said the right time. How does now twelve, fifteen years later, this happen for someone? Because as you know, the level of sophistication's gone up. There may be thousands of Ben Falks out there now. I'm being generous when I say only thousands of people that are basically using R and Python and you know scraping data from the web and you know building their own fantasy teams what would you recommend to those you know we have lots of listeners and maybe high school students that love sports and business and statistics what would you recommend to them to kind of get their name out there and and, and has the skill set changed any from what you kind of developed 12 to 15 years ago to what you would expect someone to know today so i think the skill set has certainly changed um I, i think like you said the level of sophistication has grown i i still think you know, maybe this is just me, uh, you know, anchoring to my own story a little bit too much, but I still think that that same uh, recipe works, which is that follow a passion and do the work. So the advice I tend to give to people is I say, do the job before you have the job. Mm-hmm. I th- when I was with both the Blazers and the Sixers, I'd get a lot of people, 
uh, writing me asking for opportunities. And I'd ask for any kind of demonstration of their work, and they didn't have it. And, and sometimes that's understandable if you're working you know, a full-time job and you have other responsibilities, and, and that's kind of what I alluded to before. It, it helped that I had some free time. Um, but it's the, the best way to get your foot in the door is to have done the work already, gained meaningful experience, and have a demonstrable product that you can show teams, uh, which lets them be able to see, okay, this is the kind of work, this is the value that they can add to our franchise and our decision-making operation. Yeah, that seems the more actionable part of your life story, <laughs> for lack of a better term, is that, is that yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, right play, the, the timing of it was hugely important, and that's a little bit less under somebody's personal control. But what is under somebody's personal control is you have this, you build up this portfolio of the type of work you would like to spend your time doing mm-hmm. as a profession, and then... That, that having that portfolio in hand makes it easier to actually get that same job. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say that's one of the beauties of the Internet is that work can get out there very yeah. easily. So if you do a good job... You have a vehicle for disseminating. Exactly. And, and we there were a number of times, again, at both teams, where you'd see someone, like some work would, would go around on social media or something, and you'd be like, oh, that's really good. Mm-hmm. And you'd immediately, we'd, we'd reach out to them. They mm-hmm. wouldn't have to reach out to us. We'd go after them and say, hey, are you interested in an internship? Are you interested in part-time or anything like that? Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ben Falk. Ben is the owner of cleaningtheglass.com, a subscription service that provides stats, NBA stats and research and an- analysis. He's also a former VP of basketball strategy with the Sixers and worked analytics with the Trailblazers as well. Ben's in the studio with us, delightfully. Ben, being Philadelphia and being such an interesting case um, of analytics, can you tell us about your experience with the Sixers? How much of it overlapped with Sam Hinkie's regime? So uh, Sam is the one who hired me. Um, okay. So he had started in 2014 or 2013 and hired me in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I was there until he left um, and then uh, left a few months after that. Okay. So he, he put together a team. My impression is like tent. 10, 12 people. He had PhDs from various disciplines. I mean, it was just kind of this crazy group, almost a R&D group that you just don't see in sports, right? So, I mean, Sam very much valued a different kind of thinking and having different backgrounds. Um, and for sure, we had a, a variety of a diversity of background and opinion there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without discussing necessarily specific instances, can you just tell us how wide ranging the problems you were looking at? Because one could say, well, player evaluation is one. You could also say, you know, contract value is another. You could say on the court play is another. I did some work, as people, our listeners know, with the Eagles, and I know where our boundaries were. You know, Andy Reid was the coach at the time, and while we might provide suggestions for in-game, we weren't really focusing on in-game stuff. How, can you just tell us at least the range of problems that you guys were thinking about? So I think it's as wide as you could imagine. Um, I mean, that was one of the beauties uh, working for Sam is that he – it was about a method of thought more than anything, and that method of thought could be applied to any problem that you faced in basketball operations. Um, so everything that you named, we were thinking about and trying to figure out how do we how do we shift the odds slightly in our favor. Ben, what's your postmortem on what Hinky was trying to do there and what he did do, what you guys did collectively? Uh, from our perspective. Well, what's your take? I mean, what 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 do you think went well? What do you think maybe didn't go well? If you were to do it again, or if you were to yeah, advise it, the next what, what would you recommend a team kind of take that road? You know, in the future. And let, let, let me give you a little context. Mm-hmm. We a love Sam Hinkie, and I mean personally and professionally. Um, and B, we you know things might have been done a little differently that would have you know kept him around or maybe helped things. So we think we can speak 
pretty freely and openly while still respecting the guy. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think that one of the nice things about this point in time is that we're starting to see kind of the fruits of what mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. or, or what we did bear fruit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the city is very excited about a young team that's on the way up. Um, I'm sure, as you all are aware, you don't want the results to inform your opinion of the process, yeah. no pun intended. Um, and so, you know, maybe that gets put to the side. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, this was obviously an extreme path that we took mm-hmm. um, because it was an extreme goal. And so it's very difficult to achieve. You know, if your goal is to win a championship or to consistently compete for a championship, it's very, very difficult to get into that group. You need a lot of luck. Um, And so, again, it was how do you shift the odds in your favor? And sometimes the best way to do that is to take an unconventional path. Mm -hmm. Um, And so no matter what that was going to uh, engender some element of controversy, just because it's unconventional, um, I think that there are there are probably things that could have been done maybe from a PR standpoint and a media standpoint that would have made it slightly more palatable. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's a larger story here both about the path we took and the person who Sam was and the way that the media and the general basketball world reacted to that, mm-hmm. which I think was potentially, you know, the things we did personally, I believe, were a little bit blown out of proportion um, and might not have been... Uh, reacted to the same way if Sam were a different person. Well, what's the takeaway there for the analytics community? So th- I mean, that's an extreme high-profile version, but analysts all over the world and all kinds of organizations are fighting this battle to some extent. It's like, how can we get more evidence-based, um, ev- more of an evidence-based in for our decisions, which are often intuitive or political? And they have to navigate some of the same things that Sam had to navigate. What do you think the takeaways are for the analytics community? And and it could be positive or negative because, again, we don't want to, like you said, we don't want to overreact outcomes. So Sam didn't last. They they, they, they they fired him in the you know in the end before he could see the, this thing through. But we don't want to overreact to that. What do you think the takeaways are? So I, I think there's two things here. One is the specific situation with Sam and the Sixers wasn't just a matter of analytics. It, it wasn't that... Uh, you know, ownership was done with analytics, and that's why they got rid of Sam. Um, that's good to hear. <laughs> right. um, I think that, it, like I said, I think part of this was this kind of firestorm that enveloped Sam, um, and part of that was who he was, um, and then that was exacerbated by the path that was chosen. Um, so I think that there, <laughs> Sam and I would talk often about what I would call the metagame, right, which is um, there's the game itself that you might be able to optimize, but there's this game outside the game, right, which uh, is important to optimize as well. Really, that's that's all that matters. You're talking about the PR and, and, and the various sort of like so, aspects of essentially s- selling an unconventional strategy to others. Right, and that impacts the chance that your strategy works. That's yeah. kind of my point. So I think in a vacuum... We'd say if we were playing a video game, what would you do, right, that, where you don't have to deal with that other stuff? Yeah. And so there might be an optimal strategy within that video game, but there is this metagame outside of that, right, um, which impacts the probability of that succeeding. Yeah. So, yeah, Ben, as you've uh, talked, one of the things I was always thinking about, I know how much we maybe could have done more with the Eagles on this, but I'd be interested in the Sixers. How much did you spend time thinking about the optimal strategies of other teams? You know, I always claim one of the things I don't think – I'll pick myself. I don't think I do as well as a professor here at Wharton as I could. 
is teaching my students about game theory and, you know, you can do myopic optimization based on this is, would be best for the Sixers, but what about the teams around them? So how much did you guys think or even build statistical models of what other teams might do? Do you mean from a front office decision-making standpoint or an on-court decision-making standpoint? It's a good question. I was referring more from a front office point of view, as in, you know, a draft is coming up. Who might they pick? Who might be available? But if you'd like also from a, you know, if this is that team's composition and we want to win, we want to win a championship, I'll put this way, we have to be better than whoever LeBron James and whoever's likely to be around him. And if we don't know, if we can't model who that's going to be, it's hard for us to know what it would take to get better than the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I don't know how much uh, we did that quantitatively, but for sure we talked about it a lot. Um, like you say, you have to always be reacting to who your op- your competition is. Um, and so that, you know, when I say something like it's really hard to win a championship, that's, again, you're not just trying to be good in a vacuum. You're trying to be good relative to everybody else. So we're talking to Ben Falk. Ben is owner of cleaningtheglass.com. He's also former VP of basketball strategy with the Sixers. Ben, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? So you, you left shortly after Sam left with the Sixers, and you've started, you've started this site, cleaningtheglass.com. Tell us about the site and how it's gone for the last couple of years. Yeah, so when I left, I thought about what I wanted to do, and, and one of the things that I felt was that I wanted to share a lot of what I had learned uh, when I was inside the league. Um, and so I started cleaningtheglass.com, and I started writing um, just from my perspective, from having been in the league, from talking from an analytical perspective and looking at psychological biases and how all of that impacts what goes on in the front office and on the court. Um, And so recently at the start of the season, I started a subscription service on that site with uh, extra articles and videos breaking down the NBA in a really in-depth level. And then I built a whole stats site um, with the emphasis of that site being to take advanced stats and make them a little bit more easy to digest, a little bit more easy to communicate. Can you give us an example of a stat in the NBA that you're trying to make easier di- to digest or more, or, or you're trying to evangelize because maybe the common fan doesn't appreciate it in the way that you do? So I, I think you know we can start one of the uh, most basic stats, um, but that's really powerful, is looking at the NBA from a possession perspective as opposed to just a per-game perspective. So I think a lot of fans and a lot of the media, when they talk about teams, they say this team ranks second in points per game, right? Um so this was a, a something that Dean Oliver came up with years ago and kind of changed the framework uh, through which you analyze basketball was to say, well, let's look at two teams, right? They might play at different paces. And so the analogy I always use is to say, okay, imagine every team in the East played a 48-minute game and every team in the West played a 24-minute game. Everyone would say, well, that's foolish to look at points per game, mm-hmm. right? They're playing different games. If they play each other, they have to play the same minutes, mm-hmm. right? So h- how do you evaluate who's, t- who's good on offense and who's good on defense? It's the same thing with pace. They play different possessions in different games, but if you define a possession as starting when you get the ball and ending when you lose the ball, then in a game itself, when two teams are playing each other, they're basically guaranteed the same number of possessions. Mm -hmm. So everything should be evaluated on a per-possession basis as opposed to a per-game basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then teams... Teams, some teams are better at ending those possessions in unorthodox ways. So teams with good defense or blocks or interfering in the passing lanes or whatever. Those, that's a, a way of getting more, more possessions in a way, that, in more complete possessions. So using that framework, what you're trying to do is maximize the number of points you're scoring per possession of your own mm-hmm. and minimize your opponent's mm-hmm. uh, per possession. 
And so, right, so then there are these various ways that you can break down and say, how do you do that? And so this is kind of Dean Oliver's four factors framework, Mm -hmm. which is to say you can increase it by shooting. You can be more efficient on the shots that you take. You can turn the ball over less. You can offensive rebound more and continue the possession. Mm -hmm. And you can uh, get score from the foul line. Ben, we're down to a couple of minutes. We have to get your perspective on what's going on in the league this year. So especially given, you know, the way you look at basketball, how do you think that year is going to play out? And just, is there what are the chances that it's not just Warriors again? Warriors in four, Warriors in five. Warriors against Cavs in the final. I mean, so it's to me it's very interesting to say how did the Warriors become so good? It's less interesting to speculate. Yeah. I mean, they are just head and shoulders above the rest of the league. Yeah. And if there's an injury, things could open up, and it becomes very interesting. But right now, they're just at a Well, let's take level. it down a notch then to the other rivals in the West. Thunder versus Rockets. Someone else? Spurs. 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 Okay. There, the Spurs always have to be in that conversation. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are these teams that can compete. Um, they're... What's been so interesting about the NBA is you have these teams pushing all in, knowing that if that window is cracked open a little, they want to be the ones that get through it. Which is the better experiment, Anthony in the with the Thunder or CP3 with the Rockets? Who's I mean, I, I think Carmelo Anthony with the Thunder is more interesting to me. I think CP3 with the Rockets should work perfectly fine. Okay, wonderful. All right, well, Ben, thanks for coming by today. We could talk with you for the next hour. Um, hopefully that means that you'll swing by again. But thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. That was Ben Falk. Ben is owner and creator of cleaningtheglass.com. You can also catch him on Twitter, Ben C. Falk, at Ben C. Falk. And he uh, formerly served as VP of Basketball Strategy for the Sixers in the Sam Hickey regime. And before that, his first job in the NBA – basketball analytics manager with the trailblazers that has been the first half of the show we still have half to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to warden moneyball on business radio sirius xm 111 welcome back welcome back to warden moneyball two hours of sports analytics live every wednesday morning eight to ten eastern Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Fourth collaborator Audie Weiner is out most of this semester doing Audie Weiner things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. You can also email us. Email, us, is, email address is business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can do that live during the show. We'll actually respond. Or if you're hearing this replay, one of the times it's replayed over the course of the week. You can follow us at W Moneyball. Twitter handle is at W Moneyball. We are halfway through the show just off a conversation with Ben Falk in studio. Great fun talking basketball analytics. In the next half hour, one of our favorite guests and a regular guest of ours, Bill Conley from SBN Nation, SB Nation, I suppose. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. Always glad to have you. Bill is a longtime college football analyst. He's got a regular feature of Football Study Hall. He writes at SB Nation. He is the co-host of, for my, for my money, is the best college football podcast out there. It's called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Highly recommend that. It's twice a week. They do a review show on Sunday afternoon and then a preview show Wednesday sometime. It'll post today or tomorrow. But those guys are great to listen to. Bill? College football, man. I could talk with you about this for the next two hours. You got two hours? 
You got two hours? Sure, yeah, no, I don't think I have the voice for it today. I'm fighting something off here, but That's, uh, I'll, I'll go as long as I can. Come on, man. You can't be a podcast god and have voice problems. What's going on? Well, yeah, tell me about it. It's been a little bit of an issue. And this is the wrong time of year because there's a lot to talk about. Um, obviously, <laughs> the the big news in college football, mock it uh, or, or love it, whichever your position is, the big news is that the college football playoff committee issued their initial rankings for the 2017 season last night. Did you have any surprises or any 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 whinging you want to do about it? What was your take on it? No, I mean it was pretty much what you would expect. I mean, start with the AP top twenty-five, knock the G the, the mid majors down a few spots, uh, and then <laughs> yep. see if there's any sort of head-to-head uh, maneuvering you can do up top, like uh, bumping Oklahoma ahead of Ohio State, giving Clemson a boost for um, you know having a like beating Auburn, having a relatively uh, tough early schedule. So I mean, yeah, it, it pretty much kind of took shape as as you would have expected i think and and of course here's where we remember that we're all reacting to it we're all freaking out about it and you know half of these teams are going to lose in the next three weeks or so right and we want to hear your your expectations for that but first i just want to you've given us a very nice heuristic for modeling what the committee is going to do you say take the top 25 as your starting place and then just move a few things around based on some rules and you're going to do really really well which, which is, I think the AP's gotten a little smarter over the years, certainly smarter than they were in the 70s or 80s, but it is interesting to see how how, how closely aligned uh, those two are. Yeah, it's it's rarely, you know, at the end when we get into the quote-unquote conference title bumps and the weirdness, we, we do have some odd late movement in these rankings, which is part of the reason having a weekly ranking is kind of strange, because then you have, you just have to explain so much more than you otherwise would. Yep. Um, but... Regardless, it does track pretty closely, and that's, I mean, you know, wisdom of the crowds, uh, conventional wisdom, all that, it, it does have its place. Um, if you're the Big 12, you have to like what you see uh, from this early going, just because Oklahoma is a few spots higher, TCU's a couple spots higher uh, in the in the playoff rankings in the AP poll, but... Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I just tracked pretty closely overall. Well, let's let's jump on oh, that you point out. Oklahoma is probably the biggest surprise to me. They came in higher, and, and they seem to put some weight on head to head that we may not have may not have expected. Um, what what do you expect out of the Big Twelve? It's this it's this they've done this thing. They've added a conference championship, even though they don't have divisions, which is entertaining. <laughs> God knows how that's going to work out for them. But they do have three teams still in the running. Um, any one of them would have a decent case if they won out. Um, I think any one of them would have a good case if they won out. The problem is they probably won't. Right. Um, Oklahoma still has to play TCU and Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State uh, has to play OU, and then you play this little battle royal, and at the end, one of these teams or two of these teams play each other again. Right. Um, it's it's really from an entertainment standpoint, it's spectacular. Right. Because this really is. I mean, this is a, a WrestleMania. This is a, a or not WrestleMania, the, the battle royal one where you got you know a bunch of teams just beating on each other and at the end you play a one-on-one match to to top it great as long as you don't have national title aspirations right Uh, it's crazy to do this they were getting away with not having a title game uh that was a humongous asset but because it potentially backfired on them one time in 2014 they forget all the times that having a title game backfired on them uh during the original big 12 iteration right all the years uh, k-state kept on knocking out otherwise would be national contenders right yeah i mean colorado beats texas uh kansas state beats oklahoma which almost knocked oklahoma out oklahoma beats missouri uh texas beats nebraska it was just over and over again that they are the perfect example of why uh uh, having a conference title game is dangerous but they went ahead and did it again anyway so let's take that though this year where we haven't seen the irish in the conversation since the playoff committee started doing its work so they've got they're they're in the situation of not having a conference championship game. So they're going to be if they went out and odds are against their winning out. But if they went out, 
conference championship weekend, they're going to be at home, and everyone's going to be paying attention to the Oklahomas and Clemsons of the world. And you could yeah. imagine they're kind of getting this Big 12 disadvantage. And 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 do you think that's going to have consequence? Or conversely, do you think, come on, it's Notre Dame. Brand name's going to carry some extra weight. <laughs> well, it, it's, it'll carry extra weight. The problem is they'll be going up against uh, you know, potentially a lot of other names that carry extra weight. Uh, you know, the Oklahomas and the Ohio State and the uh, maybe Clemson's or Miami's or whatever. So that probably balances it out a little bit. But you know, it really is. I mean, I'm on the side of, you know, not having an extra opportunity to lose is still better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, if they get to the finish line here, having beaten a, a good Wake Forest, first of all, but then winning at Miami and Stanford, uh, beating Navy, which they've only done like six of the last ten times. So, that's all, you know, that's, that's been a very kind of almost back-and-forth series of late. You, if you survive all that, I think you've proven yourself to, to a really good degree. Obviously, it depends on who else is around who else still has one loss i do think we're in a situation where we're not going to have many one loss teams when all is said and done so it, it maybe we end up with a pretty clear picture mm-hmm. but they're going to have a pretty good case for themselves and then they won't have to then play another top 10 team at the end of the year and maybe lose it mm-hmm. bill this is eric bradley i wanted to ask you you mentioned that you know why not just why take why not just take the top 25 and do some triggering what type of evidence do you think it takes for a team that lost to another team to jump them let's take an example notre dame and georgia so Notre Dame lost to Georgia. Let's imagine it's the end of the season. They're both one-loss teams. Do you see a scenario, or what evidence would you need for Notre Dame to go in over a team that they lost to with the same record? Yeah, that's that's one of the scenarios we're kind of staring down at the moment. If you get to a situation where Georgia and Alabama are, or well, Georgia's undefeated and they lose in the SEC title game, uh, and so you're, maybe you're in a situation where it's exactly what it is now. Georgia's one, Alabama two, Notre Dame three. Uh, do you bump Georgia below Notre Dame because they lost to Alabama? Or like, what do you do? I, I I assume the committee won't do that. I assume Georgia would end up ahead of Notre Dame. But what, the other thing at play here is we we know that second loss is pretty powerful. You think back to last year, Penn State versus Ohio State. Penn State won the Big Ten and had head to head over Ohio State, uh, but still finished below them in the in the playoff rankings. Uh, in part because they had lost to Pitt and Michigan early in the year. They had the second loss. Ohio State only had one and got the nod. So there are certainly scenarios like that. Well, we could make the same scenario with Ohio State and Oklahoma, right? Like what happens if Ohio State and Oklahoma are battling for that last spot and Oklahoma went to Ohio State and beat them fairly soundly? I think the, the, the fact that the committee put Oklahoma over Ohio State right now does say quite a bit because in terms of like week-to-week quality, my, my numbers and a lot of other people's numbers like Ohio State quite a bit more than Oklahoma just because Oklahoma hasn't been that good since then. They've been good, but they haven't been top five good since then. And uh, so, But the fact that Oklahoma still is ahead of Ohio State right now, I do think positions them really, really well. Cause, I mean, they have to win out, obviously. Uh, but if they do that, they're already ahead. Ohio State won't really beat anybody else. Michigan is good, uh, is pretty good still, but they're not quote unquote ranked at the moment, so that won't be a, a feather in the cap. They'll only beat Wisconsin. Oh, you meanwhile will have beaten TCU and Oklahoma State, uh, and then either TCU or Oklahoma State a second time. I would assume that at this point, if both Oklahoma and Ohio State went out, Oklahoma ends up ahead. Great. We're talking to Bill Conley. Bill Conley is the proprietor of Football Study Hall. He is a regular contributor to SB Nation and the co-host of a fantastic college football podcast called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. He co-hosts that with Stephen Godfrey, who is kind of the journalist side of that journals and numbers combination that they have going on. We're talking college football playoff committee with Bill. Bill, we're reconnecting with him on the phone. We're not quite back to him yet, 
but we will be. The, th- that question of Georgia versus Notre Dame, what difference is the head-to-head count? The, the Ohio State versus Oklahoma, what difference is the head-to-head count? It's, 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 it's a great year because we've got some of those added to this mix of so many one-loss teams. This other thing we have, which seems to be a serious possibility for the first time, really, is the, the chance of having two teams from one division, from one conference come mm-hmm. through. And I'm surprised. We've been trying to model the committee based on the first, first three years in our projections. And our numbers are saying Georgia is very likely, if they win out, is very likely, if it, and lose to Alabama in the title game, very likely to be pulled into the, to the playoff. I mean, they're like odds on favorite to be yeah. one of the four, even though they'd be the second team from the SEC. Bill, do you agree with that? What do you think is going to happen with those guys? Yeah, I think this is a very good year for a second team like that, just generally, whether we're talking specifically about Georgia or not, because the Big 12 is likely to have uh, is not likely to have a one-loss team at the end of the day. Pac-12 is kind of dicey in that regard. So this is a good opportunity for such a thing. And then you've got a Georgia team that, A, is awesome, uh, and B, beat Notre Dame. Uh, when they scheduled that, whenever they scheduled that game, I don't think they quite knew what impact right. it was going to have. Right. They did. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think Georgia's in very, very good shape all the way around. Uh, what's funny though is if you flip that around and let's you know let's pretend Alabama's the team that finishes undefeated and loses to Georgia. Now they because of their resume they're probably in a little dicier shape. Although down the stretch here they got LSU, they got at Mississippi State, they got Auburn, so right. they're probably fine. Right. Um, and they're Alabama, but that'll be uh, almost a more interesting test case to me because I think Georgia's in regardless if they get to if they get to twelve and zero and lose I think they're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm with you on that. If you had to call now. How you think that final four is going to look? What would you say? I do think Georgia's in good shape. I think Alabama's in good shape. Mm-hmm. I think Ohio State's in good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I've got no idea. <laughs> after that, it becomes uh, really fun. Right? Let me ask a question, Bill. Yeah. Why wouldn't just an interesting question? I think we all agree Ohio State is a better team. At least right now, we see on paper than Wisconsin. Why wouldn't you say, given the weakness of their schedule, and you know, you said the, there's an advantage to playing one less game. In some sense, oh, Wisconsin's playing a lot less games. They have <laughs> yeah. one game to win in the Big Ten championship game, and if by some miracle they do, and they're an undefeated team, it's hard to imagine an undefeated Big Ten champion not being in the Final Four. So what? what What's your thought about that? Why doesn't Wisconsin have a great chance? Yeah, I think they do. Um, I, just, I, I said Ohio State in part just because I think they will win out. Um, yeah. Wisconsin, if they win out, I think they're in. I, I absolutely just like Miami. Miami's pretty low right now. You get to the finish line having beaten Notre Dame, having beaten Clemson, you're in too. Um, really, the way I did this at SB Nation yesterday is I broke this into basically nine quote-unquote teams. Alabama's one, Georgia's one, Ohio State or Wisconsin is one, Clemson, Virginia Tech, or Miami is one. Penn State, Washington, then the trio, the random Big 12 champion, Notre Dame and UCF. Those are, quote, unquote, your nine teams that probably have a shot right now. And UCF really only does if a lot of teams lose, unfortunately, because right. I think UCF is very, very good this year. And it's disappointing that – well, it's, we knew they would be bumped down. It's still disappointing that it happened, especially since they crushed Maryland, among other things. But um, – I, I, I think that's what we're looking at. Alabama's good shape. Georgia's in good shape. Either Ohio State or Wisconsin's in good shape. And then if I had to bet, I would say probably Notre Dame. Oh, man, that's that's a Notre Dame's probably not going to win out. But if they do, they're in. I, I think from a likelihood standpoint, the, the ACC champion at that point is probably your fourth most likely. Right, right. So I, I love your groupings there. The the ones that seem long shots, the ones that need they kind of don't control their own fate. I mean, Penn State. Washington yeah. may not control its own fate at this point, so you would probably subordinate those guys. The big, the Big Twelve guys, as hard as it is, and Notre Dame as hard as it is, if they, 
if they win out, they probably they likely control their own fate. So you've got to yeah, set. I think so. You've got a, You've got like six paths where teams can do it. Can can they they they're more or less in control? I, I but think it's I just want, maybe some of them are unlikely. I think I once did the bucketing, the similar bucketing to what Bill did, and basically there are too many teams we've stated that control their own fate. Like it would right. lead yeah. to more than four <laughs> teams that are in, and so and I think but the, what it's going to end up being is either the Big Twelve champion or whoever. Let's say somebody runs the table in the Big Twelve, or Notre Dame, or Wisconsin. Or, you know, somebody there can't control their own fate if you they, believe Alabama and Georgia are well, kind they, of in. Well, they can because not everyone's going to do it. You know, like, right. Like, we just, yeah, there's, no. You can't specifically say without a doubt that they control their own fate, but they probably do. <laughs> I, I mean, look, we, we ran some numbers, and Bill's run these numbers as well. The, the probability of these teams ending the season through the conference championship with fewer than two losses. Alabama's 83%. Let's just book their tickets to Atlanta now. UGA... 65% and Ohio State's about the same 65%. So those that's those are the three that that Bill and I are saying we think are most likely to to just go ahead and book them. But then the others, even though they control their fate, Clemson only 44% chance to win out. Notre Dame 32% chance to win out. OU 26% chance to, to win out. Can I ask sort of a meta question about this entire conversation? Is this the sort of week of the year when this conversation is the most fun? Because, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, is it the I mean, over the next couple of weeks, some of these games are going to actually play out. Yeah. Some of these teams are going to be eliminated from this discussion. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I, I, I'm getting the sense from you guys that, I mean, I, I know the least of everybody in this room about this. I'm getting the sense <laughs> that there's not going to be any other teams that come into the discussion, really. And so yeah. are we kind of at the most sort of fun time for this speculation? Yeah. At the end of the day, we're going to have basically five or six teams with a good case. Um, and, but right now it's like nine or ten or twelve or fifteen or whatever. And so it's, it's certainly a lot more fun. I will say about the I, I, I complained about the weekly playoff rankings earlier. I like having it once, kind of like what they did with the mock basketball committee in like late January or whatever. I like having it laid out for you once, and this is a good time for it. Do it right now, and then don't do it again until the, the official rankings. I know they're always going to do it because it's ratings and all that. But I think at some point you get into kind of pointless maneuvering. It's really fun to speculate on November 1st, however. That's the absolute perfect time to do it. Right. So we're talking to Bill Conley. Bill is the proprietor of Football Study Hall and a regular writer on SB Nation. He's also the co-host of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Bill, we've been talking about the committee and the playoffs. We do have real football that has nothing to do with committees um, this, this weekend. And when I look at the slate, it feels like the kind of weekend we've been waiting for all year, more or less, where there's just great games all over the country that hasn't been the case really since maybe week one. And this is a better slate probably than even than even week one. What are you paying attention to this weekend? Yeah, I, I, I'm really – yeah, this is a good thing. And, and, you know, we've got five undefeated teams left. My numbers say there's only about a 22% chance that all five win. Okay. Uh, so we really are getting into the elimination scenarios here pretty quickly. But uh, Miami-Virginia Tech's really, really big, Absolutely. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that's that is kind of an elimination game of sort. It very much is for Virginia Tech. It probably is for Miami. Uh, winner gets the first shot at Clemson, uh, it, it, you know, the, the most likely shot at Clemson in the ACC title game. But Clemson has to beat NC State. Um, right. You know, earlier in the day, uh, which I, I really I don't completely trust Clemson yet. And, and NC State's got a really nice run front. They should be able to stop the run and make Kelly Bryant do everything, which uh, has almost backfired a couple times, did backfire at Syracuse before he got hurt. Um, so those are two games, I think, from a national title perspective. Those are very, very interesting. Wisconsin, Indiana, if you're talking about national title, Wisconsin looked, did not look very good last week. 
Uh, and Indiana has been very close to a series of upsets, but because they're Indiana, they fell short every single time. Right. Um, so that's another really, really interesting game to, uh, to watch. Really, though, if we're just talking about football and, and importance and just really fun college football, OU-OSU is going to be phenomenal. I, I can't wait for Oklahoma-Oklahoma State. Bill, just to build on what you just said about Virginia Tech, does Virginia Tech control their own destiny if they beat Clemson? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, if they if they win this week... And then all of a sudden, you know, they beat Miami, and then all of a sudden they go in and they beat Clemson in the champion ACC championship game. Are they in? I, they're going to have a very good shot. I mean, I, I have them as basically getting, you know, a 17% chance of getting to Clemson undefeated. Or not undefeated, but not losing again, winning out. Um, and then they would probably have about a 30 40% chance of beating Clemson too. But if they get there, there's only like a 10% chance. But if they, if they get there 12-1 and one with only a loss to Clemson, and wins over Clemson and Miami, that's, that's going to be a solid case, especially if we're only talking about four or five teams being, still being in that zero or one loss pool. So, yes, I think to a, to a degree we could say that it's, it's, it's pretty likely that Virginia Tech controls its own destiny. They just probably won't get there. Right. So we put – Massey Peabody puts a 9% chance on they're making the playoff, which is not nothing compared to most of the – most of yeah. the, By the way, that, that, that Virginia Tech – Miami game that Bill's talking about is the Virginia Tech is the favorite. So this is I mean everyone's talking about Miami, but as as Eric's pointing out, the 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 Hokies are favored by two and a half, and they're and they're on the road. So yeah, Miami uh, Miami is really kind of addicted to the drama right now. Whether you're good or not, <laughs> right. it's going to be like down to the last two or three minutes, and it could be the same again. I like their defense a lot. Offense is very inconsistent, uh, but comes up with the plays right when they need to, which isn't really something we we think of as sustainable. But, yeah, no, that's going to be a really interesting game. It should be a fun game, and it's obviously very important. Right. So you mentioned Oklahoma-Oklahoma State. It's kind of the marquee game of a great weekend, and you're an Oklahoma guy. So let's hear <laughs> let's hear you break this thing down. One of the things that jumps out immediately is that the, is the offense. So these are two of the top five offenses. And our, our numbers are numbers one and four on offense, but they're only numbers 38 and 26 on defense. How many points are we going to see this weekend? And who do you yeah, expect? Yeah, I mean, I have, I have them actually one and four as well on offense. I have OSU's offense or defense thirty third. OU's defense is now one oh third. Oh my um, gosh! Oh my gosh! I, which I think probably has something to do with just the range. Because, like their their offense is getting a little too much credit there. But regardless, um, no, they, these are very very interesting offensive, very very balanced offensive teams, and that they really can do whatever you can't stop. Um, you know, o, OU last week, obviously Texas Tech defense still isn't uh, very good or never has been, never will be. But, uh, you know, they just uh, they got the ball back with like 11 minutes left and just said, all right, we're going to run now, and just ran out the last 11 minutes of the clock mm-hmm. um, after putting up huge passing numbers early in the game. So that's that's a really interesting thing when you got two teams that can take advantage of whatever weaknesses you've got defensively. Mm-hmm. Both of these teams have weaknesses defensively. So this could be – I think the, the interesting thing here is that OSU still plays with tempo. OU really doesn't. This is not a – you know, despite the – the uh, stereotype, OU is not really a high-tempo team this year, and so maybe this is a situation where controlling the flow of the game, the number of possessions of the game really matters. Um, and I think the other major thing here is that the offensive line play is going to matter a lot. OU's got a brilliant offensive line. OSU's had a couple of injuries. They've gotten a little leaky up front, and maybe that makes the difference. It's in Stillwater, though, so um, I really I, – numbers-wise, I say OSU has the edge, but I don't know. This is a really interesting game. Well, I was going to ask you about the injuries. The Texas game was just a couple of weeks ago, and and Texas obviously took them to OT. But you know these guys were they were offensive linemen were dropping right and left for those guys. I didn't know whether they'd recovered or not. And then there's the question of Mason Rudolph versus Baker Mayfield. Mayfield 
has some of this Johnny Manziel quality <laughs> in that he just well, he's got, I don't know if that's quite the right comparison. He's got this thing you see in some college quarterbacks sometimes where they just figure things out. They they can take the thing over and figure things out. And as good as Rudolph is, I'm not sure he has that same quality. Yeah, no, very, they are very different, and, and you're right. Uh, Mayfield has a lot of Johnny Manziel in him just in terms of improvisational skill. Um, he's got, he, he knows the playbook. He can do things off of that. But when things start to break down and he escapes the pocket, you know, that's when you kind of get on the edge of your seat. That's when it's almost more fun. Um, and, and he's got a lot of that. Uh, Rudolph is the opposite. He's, one or two times a game, he's going to make a terrible decision or a terrible read and, and, and uh, they probably make a terrible pass. But otherwise, uh, he's running that RPO system brilliantly. He's got a, a humongous arm, a better arm than Mayfield or just about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, the, part of the reason they've been so good at the deep ball is just they know they have a quarterback who can throw it, um, and they let him. So uh, it, it really is. You know, he's a little banged up. He's quote unquote probable for the game oh, wow. uh, on Saturday. Uh, I'm assuming that's not really an issue. But I mean, this it is kind of a contrast in styles here. While in the same uh, in the same bucket uh, of RPO and all that, it's it's still pretty big contrast here. Bill, I assume there's nothing to see in the LSU Alabama game. It's a 21 point line. I mean, are, are we are we are, should we pay any attention to that this weekend? Well, I mean, the step one towards beating Alabama is being able to match up with them physically, and very few teams can do that. LSU can. and I mean, this was a game that was 0-0 in the fourth quarter last year. So, you know, technically, it is worth paying attention to. It's one of those, like, monitor the situation. That's what I was saying on, on PAPN that's coming out later today. Monitor Iowa, Ohio State, just in case. Monitor <laughs> Alabama while you're watching whatever game you're watching, Virginia Tech, Miami. Just pay attention just in case because technically – uh, you know, LSU's maybe a bounce or two away from getting an early lead and making things really interesting. Plus, as I like to point out, uh, Canada, the LSU offensive coordinator, was a pit last year when Pitt beat Clemson. So we might uh, have a little disruption left in him here. We'll see. Good fun. Okay. I want to take one that's kind of off the national radar. I, I've been dying to ask these questions to someone who knows something because um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything. But what is what is going on in Arizona with Khalil Tate? And, and in particular, so they play USC – this weekend and and the line is seven and a half so it's it's not nothing it's in it's in the coliseum and yet it's only seven and a half but this quarterback who seems to have dropped out of the sky how and yet <laughs> it, and yet is doing things out there no one's really seen quarterbacks do and it was like reggie bush playing quarterback or something but i mean my main question is how does that happen how does that guy on your sideline for the first few games of the year i'm, I'm honestly just mystified <laughs> there must be a backstory well, the backstory is number one, he was terrible last year. He was his passing line from last year as a freshman. Uh, they had a ton of injuries last year. That was part of the reason they were so bad. Uh, he was 18 for 45 with three touchdowns and three picks. Uh, so it was really a situation where he was still, he was mobile, but he was so bad throwing that he couldn't stay on the field. Okay. Uh, yeah. Plus, I mean, he was only good running last year, five and a half yards per carry. Uh, but earlier this year, uh, you know, they had an incumbent uh, in uh, Brandon Dawkins and. Tate got hurt. He missed two games. And so that was part of the reason he was off the radar. He shows up in game five against Colorado, rushes for a billion yards. Um, so I think it's a combination of uh, the injury was part of the reason he was off the field, but he's finally come around to in the passing sense. And I mean, my goodness, has he? Like he, he's getting sacked like 1% of it. He's gotten sacked once all year, which is crazy for a mobile quarterback. He's right. averaging 11 and a half yards per attempt if you factor sacks in. 
Um, and then he's, uh, you know, this is uh, everybody's a little more distracted. He's able to find a little more rushing lanes. He's just reading the game better. I think that's the biggest thing. He's been an athlete all along, but now he's reading the game to such a degree. Like, t- take out sacks, the one sack, he's averaging almost 14 yards per carry right now. It's just uh, incredible. This is like Taylor Martinez, uh, right. freshman year in Nebraska, hit that first month before he started suffering injuries. Uh, it's been incredible, and it's made a huge difference. Last four games, they've scored 45, 47, 45, and 58. Uh, they're going to score on USC. Might not be able to stop USC, uh, but it really is. If they win that game, they're suddenly the Pac-12 South favorites. I don't think any of us were really kind of uh, reading into that uh, early in the year. No, we, we we all granted it to USC before the season started, and even after things didn't look as good as they as we expected yeah. them to. But we have Arizona as a top ten offense in the country right now. The profile, if yeah. you look at offense and defense, looks a little bit like um, Louisville which is perhaps not surprising yeah. given the QB situation. But is is Tate someone that people are going to – I assume he's not a senior. This is how naive I am about these he's things. He's a sophomore. He was a true, I think he was a true freshman last year. Wonderful. Uh, and he was just so athletic that they gave him a shot. He just wasn't ready, and it appears he's ready now. But he's the guy. He's he's one of the reasons we watch college football. He's one of the stories, and I'm delighted to hear that we're going to have two more years of him. Surely, given what he's done this year, there'll be an off-season buzz about him. We're talking about Heisman Trophy. Maybe Arizona will be on national TV more often. I think it's just one of these classic college stories that needs to have a little bit profile yeah he was a four-star prospect it was a big get is just yeah you know you never with with the quote-unquote athletes you never really know uh, about the passing situation and it's it's all clicked all of a sudden okay so bill those are the main questions we had for you what what are you thinking about that you think others aren't thinking about right now what do you what are you peddling that we can chat about here before we lose you <laughs> Well, I, I do. Um, I, first of all, we have my annual November is here post going up later today. That was a, a something we evergreen every year because we always we spend eight months of the year uh, trying to figure out what the season's going to be like. We spend the first two months of the year deciding we know everything, and then the season doesn't really start until today. Um, right. and, and so this is the this is the exciting month right here. Hopefully, my voice holds up over the next month. Um, but that is a, a big thing. I think another thing I'm really curious about that isn't necessarily on the radar, shouldn't be on the radar, with my numbers right now, really something weird is happening this year in that I think a lot of high potential teams are not showing, have not, okay, let me me back up. Tennessee is 103rd in my rankings right now. Wow. Florida is 90th. Florida State is 75th. Um, This is, Texas A&M is 72nd. Usually when we talk about those teams stinking, it's because they're only 44th. Um, but the bottom has fallen out uh, in, in, from my numbers that in, in a way that I haven't ever seen before, and I'm really curious what that means for the last month of the year. I take preseason projections out of the equation halfway through the year. Uh, I think this year that's probably a mistake right? Uh, because I think it's, it's let teams fall a little bit further than they should. But that's there are a lot of teams right now that could p- pull some upsets late in the year or at least improve late in the year because I think they're way too low at the moment in right. my numbers at least. Right. I feel like a, with, with you and priors and preseason expectations, I feel like a drug dealer. I feel like I'm always trying to hook you a little bit more. No, try a little bit more, Bill. Try, <laughs> try a little bit more. Keep on well, I, using. Keep on the, using. Here's the deal with, with the way I use priors and whatnot. Um, I have simulated a million things here, and um, the keeping the projections in versus not makes a little difference in volatility. doesn't really make a lot of difference in for me in, in predictive success. And so at that point, I flip to the, the option that doesn't get me yelled at as much. <laughs> That's true. People hate priors. The, 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 the fans don't love you're using preseason expectations this late. Yeah. I tell you what, one of the consequences for all those teams, the bottom dropping out will be coaching changes, of course. Is yeah. there any one that yeah. you think is especially important or that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think the really 
the the most interesting one in that regard. I think we we all assume Butch uh, Jones is gone at Tennessee, and he pro- almost certainly is. Nebraska probably will be looking for a coach. We can kind of take some guesses here. A and M, I think someone's fine at this exact moment, but I have them projected to potentially lose three of their last four, and he's probably right. not fine at that point. So you've right. got a humongous ball of potential in the SEC where like half the teams are, are thinking about making changes and might after a couple like after a quiet year last year. Uh, but the most interesting situation to me right now is is um, Jimbo Fisher at, at Florida State. He's not mm-hmm. going to get fired because his buyout is is a billion dollars. Uh, they can't buy him out. But he is he's displaying every single symptom of just complete and total burnout this year. And so number one, if he stays, and he probably will, he's going to make a ton of coaching of assistant coaching changes and try to just cycle get some new energy in the program that he should have probably done two years ago. Yep. Uh, but uh-huh. also. I mean, he might, you know, he might just burn out. He might, uh, you know, just leave. Wow. Um, and, wow. and I'm really curious how that all plays out. Yeah, so we need to hear the backstory on what yeah. has gone on inside that program this year. They, they've had, they obviously had a very important injury in the first game of the year, but they, they shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening there given they have no. the talent they have on the field. And Yeah, and, no, I have them 110th on offense right now. And, uh, like, they've, they've had a ton of injuries on the offensive line and the receiving court, quarterback. But, but you still. would think that the floor is still higher than 110. That's right. That's right. All right. Listen, Bill, very much appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. All right. That was Bill Conley of SB Nation, proprietor of Football Study Hall and co-host of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, one of the best college football podcasts out there. You can follow him on Twitter at SBN underscore Bill C, at SBN underscore Bill C. Bill Conley of SB Nation. That is three quarters of our show. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Katie Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here. Also, Audie Weiner here every Wednesday talking sports analytics. We're also replayed a few times over the course of the week. You can join the conversation if you're listening live, 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at cirrusxm.com, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall for some sports analytics. We're just off the phone with the fabulous Bill Conley, college football analyst extraordinaire, Influencing the world out there, man. His numbers, people talk about his numbers. He's made the world smarter by putting out good numbers. Um, We've talked a lot about college football. God knows I could talk about it for the next couple hours. But let's talk about some other things. There are other sports. Uh, You know, we talked, we had had Ben Falcon here talking basketball. Did Mm -hmm. we... Did we tap out on basketball? You guys have anything else to say on the NBA? Well, there was one thing I wanted to point out on the NBA, and you know, but it related to. We'll get to NFL trades in a second. It was about NBA, so I'm going to give you the numbers of a player. I'll do it the blind version that we talked about earlier. I'm not going to tell you who the player is, and you tell me whether you'd like this person on the on your team potentially. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is a person in 30 minutes of play in their first season in the NBA, averaged 18 points and seven rebounds. Pretty reasonable in 30, in 30 minutes, minutes of play. Yeah. Yeah, in 30 minutes yeah, of play. Not bad. Last year, his numbers were cut to 22 minutes of play, but the person averaged 12 points and 7 rebounds. So, oh, so for 22 minutes of play. Okay. This year, in 22 minutes of play, the players got 10 points and 9 rebounds. Okay, this is in 22 minutes of play. So is this a player you might want on your team? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm Golden State, it's probably not making it. But yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So this player, it's an interesting, we, given we had Ben Falk here, that player is Julia Okafor. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the number three pick in the draft 
who were desperate for, I understand, because maybe style of play, we're trying to get rid of this person. But given it was NFL trade day yesterday, I was starting to think, and there was an article right below it, Sixers desperately trying to trade Okafor. So if I told you you could get a player in 20 minutes of play, could average 10 points and 9 rebounds, I think most people would take that player and find a role for that player on the team. Or when he was playing a full-time 30 minutes, which is not quite full, and he was averaging 18 points and 7 rebounds, I think most people would say, that's not too bad. Right. And so I was just, it was interesting to me that the Sixers are looking to trade someone. I understand they have a log jam at the front court. I understand that. But this seems to be a viable player. And the Priors, you know, you just got off the phone with Bill Conley talking about Priors. The guy was the third pick in the draft. So Priors would say the guy's got some value. His NBA performance is saying he's got some value. And maybe the Sixers are asking too much. We don't know. But why would you Why would you desperately want to trade this guy? And and by the way, everybody and, knows and I'm, not that, that, logic, I'm not a Julio Okafor fan. I'm not a fan of again, his. We don't, the, what we don't know is what they're asking for. Um, but by that same logic, why wouldn't they have made a trade by now? Like, why wouldn't there be? I mean, other teams must value having Okafor on the roster as well. So why have they not been able to complete a trade? That was that was my one question, and it made me think about the NFL, which there was a big trade yesterday. But let me before I get to that, Several. would you would you trade a sixty second pick for a thirty fourth pick? <laughs> Uh, yes. Yes, you would, right? Right. Yeah. So this was interesting because I, I knew Kate obviously was going to be hosting our show today. So Jimmy Garoppolo was the 62nd pick in the draft, okay? Mm-hmm. And the Patriots have now turned that into a 34th pick in the draft. Now, of course, we have some data on Garoppolo, but not much data. Yeah. And so I was just wondering, is this just another masterful job of... Bill Belichick, where essentially he turned a 62nd pick into a 34th pick, and I'm obviously staring at someone who has studied exactly how much value places have in the draft, especially for quarterbacks. So has he essentially, I don't want to say hoodwinked us, but he's traded a 62nd pick to a 34th pick, and we do know some data on Garoppolo, but not a ton. Is this just, like, if I had told you, forget the names for a second, if I told you 62nd for 34th, but... The 60-second pick player played two games, had five touchdowns and no interceptions, and completed 60% of his passes. Is that Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. The, the general question is how much information do that's you need the question. in order to update your opinion yeah. significantly? One that round. Was, that's one exactly round, my question. Essentially one round. And yeah. that was my question. I just thought it was interesting, looked at from that perspective, is the information we have on Garoppolo worth one round? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great general question about how quickly you can update on quarterbacks. I mean, there's so much uncertainty coming in. Yeah, I, I, I that's, think that's the key is that there's so much uncertainty about quarterbacks that any information you people people just latch onto. The fact that he has played two to three games, I guess two games, two complete games, right. you know, and and has you know played them in an above average fashion. Um, that 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 is information that everybody would seize upon, given the vast amount of uncertainty. But how, how much how much overreaction have we seen in the league about quarterback play with bigger samples than that in oh, just yeah. the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah Ryan Mallett, man, Hoyer. I, I mean, a lot of there's been a lot of New England backups and of course, over the years. Well, of course, that I have love, gone out that have had very high expectations coming well, out. Well, as of you New know, England. you know, I mean, you probably as a Patriot fan know yeah. the statistic, but there's no quarterback that the Patriots have ever traded 
that has a 500 record in the NFL. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, Bill Belichick may have private information. He, you know, maybe it's the system they're in. But of all the quarterbacks they've had, and by the way, the I'm other, surprised Drew Bledsoe didn't he actually was, have he was over 30, 500 he was, after the New England. So he was 35 and 36. Oh, man. <laughs> he just kept playing too long. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's well, right. No, no, no. Right. He was really good for the first couple of years yeah, after he was, he was traded, and then Buffalo. he just kept playing too long. Do you but it, yeah. do, y'all probably remember this, but who replaced him ultimately? Who was it that stepped into his shoes the last time? Was it Romo? Roma. Yeah. Oh, oh you're saying Bledsoe. I feel like oh, we you're saying Bledsoe with for, the Cowboys. For okay, I thought you were saying with the very Patriots. Semantic, but for your particular comparison, we should really just kind of go to the next team that they traded him to. Like, he was over 500 in Buffalo. Absolutely right. he was. Yeah. Absolutely he was. It's but I great, was just wondering about how quickly business, you update. It's a great yeah. business to get in, especially if you have a franchise quarterback who might play until he's 50. It's a great business yeah. to be in. Gross, grow backup quarterbacks and farm them out. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, of course, another trade that was intriguing yesterday was the Eagles trade to get uh, Jay Ajahi, yeah. who was, you know, by advanced metrics, he was a top three running back last year. Forget that he ran for 1,200 and something yards, mm-hmm. which was fourth in the league, by, like, they, they you know, yards after contact. They also had, they have this elusiveness metric. They only that, had to give up a fourth rounder for this guy, too. That's my question. So I, I can I completely understand, understand this from Philadelphia's perspective. Yeah. What is Miami doing? Well, that's, what, I, that's injury, what I was asking you guys. There's an injury question, right? There's okay. an injury question there he, is an industry he hasn't, in, injury he, he's been off of his peak performance but you know that's why that's why you take chances on people because there's a there's a possibility that they come yeah. back from this thing but you get it at a discount because it's not guaranteed i think a lot of people just also think it's you know obviously we have legarrett blunt a lot of people are trying to make a comparison between the two either way he's an insurance policy he's 24 years old this seems to be to be a, a great insurance policy one where maybe now ajahi and blunt run better cuz they're sharing catches and everything this seemed like a just on pay, it just seemed like a great trade. I mean, Howie Roseman, if you know, unless unless the Dolphins know something the rest of us don't, and he fails his physical, which and, then the trade would be voided. This seems like a great trade for the Eagles. And you know, the rich getting richer because the Eagles are looking quite good. They're they're they've stepped up. Let's let's pop over to the NFL in general. So where do we? The Massey Peabody rankings, our our advanced metrics look, has the Eagles up to number four, up a spot from five last week. We still start with kind of a familiar triumvirate, New England, Pittsburgh, Seattle, but then Philadelphia's right there. And th- and these groups, these teams are pretty well grouped together. Um, so that's the number four power-ranked team, one of the best records in the in the league, getting one of the most interesting running backs as a second running back. It's interesting. Um, what other teams... The Seattle Seahawks made a trade. So the Seattle's been quiet kind of this year. They're sneaking back up, and mm-hmm. then they went out and They've traded for it. They've had a good last couple of weeks. And they have a new offensive lineman they needed, apparently. And uh, that you have to start taking them seriously now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they're honestly, yeah, I mean, I, this is a very wide-open year, it seems, in general, right? I mean, other than, I guess, maybe, I mean, even New England does not look particularly dominant in, in, in their play, right? So, um I think, you know, I mean, of all the years for Philadelphia to make a run, since, this is a good one. Since we're also talking about Seattle, can we talk about something that I, I apologize to our at W Moneyball fans for not tweeting about this last week? So how many times is a coach at fourth and one, I'm referring to Bill O'Brien with the Houston Texans, just to, know, to remind everybody, they had Seattle beat. In other words, if they go for it on fourth and one last week against Seattle, they're winning the game. They gave the ball back, they punted to Seattle, gave them the ball back with two and a half minutes left in the game. Seattle drove down the field, scored a touchdown, and won. Where were they on the field? 
I think they were somewhere. I mean, this that's obviously a relevant question. But remember, Seattle needs a touchdown to win. So we could debate whether how much extra, like let's imagine Seattle takes over at their 20 versus even if it's the Houston 40. They still, it's not a field goal. It's a touchdown to take the lead. I think I'm going to say they were at their own 35 or 40 yard line. I did a little bit of calculation on it. They should have gone for it on fourth and one there. And so this is, again, an example where we say Seattle's coming on. Okay, well, if Bill O'Brien, I'm not saying they would have made the play, but if Bill O'Brien gets the, they have no timeout stuff. The game is actually over. The game is over. They kneel on the ball, and they didn't go for it. And, of course, Seattle got the ball back actually in almost three plays, drove straight down the field, scored a touchdown. You'd be saying, a, this is why it yeah, happens. No, You'd be true. saying a different narrative. Oh no, my God, I, it's the four I, I and three agree. Seattle agree, team. I, I think, They're behind the Rams. You know, what are the chart? Yeah, the Rams. Just think, what's yeah, going I mean, on here? I agree. And I, I just think that sort of logic, though, completely correct and ignores basic human psychology that, you know, the no coach is going to go for it on fourth and one in their own half of the field at the, in the, at that juncture. I Despite, just think me, well, there's too much risk. So you think even a Bill Belichick, let me just be clear. Bill Belichick second. actually did do this. Right. Years so, ago in against this, Indianapolis. Right. And so, I, again, and also let's remember, this is a game, I may get the score wrong, both teams had over 30 points at the time, so there's evidence that we have that neither team can stop the other team very well. Go for it on fourth down and one. Why mm-hmm. would you not go yep. for it? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. I just so yeah. next, I, next. I, by the way, if people follow us you, on at W Moneyball, I will tweet next happen. week when I see egregious things like this happen. So there, there are, there seems to be a tendency for coaches to avoid ending the game, like losing the game now, even if it decreases the chance of them lo- losing it later, or when it, it, it mm-hmm. decreases the chance of their winning it later. They don't want it to be lost now, and so he, basically, he kind of kicks the can down the road. He's like, if we give them the ball on our own 35 they're going to roll run in and score a touchdown and that's just i can't handle that let me at least re- reduce that possibility but i have to say i agree with that logic but it's not the, i mean psychology no, no. more than logic yeah the, the, the way i was thinking about it is when a team is let's say there's a minute and a half left in the game and they're at the ball at their own 20s they have 80 yards to go to win the game most defenses give them the first 30 or 40 yards anyway they're giving them those yards as long as they tackle them in bounds to run time off the clock like the odds i mean that's what I'm saying. What's the difference between them getting the ball essentially yeah. at the 50 or the 20? It's not those 30 yards that are hard to get. It's the last 30 yards that are hard to get. And if you get one yard, the game's over. I, I just didn't see it. I just, either way. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I agree, and I wish I could remember the exact context of this game that I recall where Belichick did actually. New England went forward on a fourth down in their own half of the field against Indianapolis because if they had gotten it, the game would have been over. Right, and, um, again, and, I was, and they did not get it, and then Indianapolis did come back and win. But I was also using I was also using the score in the game as a proxy for can my defense stop them? Right. Yeah, that's right. all. So we're at the halfway point in the season, looking around, looking at the standings, looking at the projections. What's jumping out to you guys? I mean, clearly the Eagles, especially locally, are one of the big stories. We have them projected as the one of the highest win totals in the league. They're they're behind only New England for that. We also have them projected as, by we, I mean Massey Peabody, we have them projected as the favorite coming out of the NFC. Now, Seattle's coming, and Seattle's got a lot of experience. you got to like Russell Wilson's chances in a late playoff game against a second-year Carson Wentz, no matter how good Wentz is. Um, what else? And New England, you know, just keeping that number one spot, just chugging along. No one's really rivaling them over, over across the league. Uh, 
What else jumps out? What are some storylines that jump out to you? Well, the two teams that have jumped out to me is I don't think a lot of people, maybe uh, you know, Mr. AFC East here, would have projected necessarily that the Bills would be 5-2 and two at this point. That's right. They That's also right. picked up Kelvin Benjamin yep. in the trade deadline, and uh, I think their wide receivers yeah, were literally the, the, last I mean, in the I, NFL. I, guess, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit not used to sort of, I mean, the NFL trade deadline this year seemed to be a little bit more active than I think it often I I did not expect the Bills to be buyers at this trade deadline, you know. So I mean that's Unusual. interesting. Yeah, you know I mean the Bills certainly are kind of exciting. Um, I think it's really kind of interesting what's happening. I mean obviously Philadelphia has been really the, the NFC East is a little surprising to me just in terms of like just how bad the Giants are, how good the Eagles are. And of course, Dallas has basically been riding this sort of Zeke suspension thing up and down the entire season. It's almost hard to evaluate that team. The other team that's caught my eye, of course, you know, since I'm an NFC South guy is not forget that the Bucs aren't doing well. The Saints are five and two, and they've won five straight games. They lost their first two games in heartbreaking fashion, and you say, "Well, there goes the Saints." Well, they're five and two, and they're beating teams fairly soundly. And you know, let's imagine—I mean, we're a long way from that—but let's pretend right now they're the two seed, or even imagine. Let's imagine they get to the one seed. I think, by the way, the Saints are playing the Eagles this year. But either way, I think we could check on that. If the Saints were at home for the NFC playoffs. Are you telling me that in the, you know they have they're it would no be hard not to favor them? In it would this be case. home not yeah. to favor them in yeah. this case. So we could be staring at a situation where the Saints could end up being the you know the one I mean, of the top I, I teams. You've, 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 real quickly, you've named one of the interesting things to follow in the next few weeks, and that is the the NFC race for seeds. So Philly has a bit of a lead, but Minnesota is going to be right there. Seattle is obviously going to be right there. Even the Rams are a little bit in the conversation. That's good. That's fun. That playoff race in the NFC is. I mean, I think stacked. for the for the buys as well in the AFC because you've got New England, Pittsburgh, and Kansas City all basically competing they've for got, that. They've got they've and got only got those two out of th- only two out of those three can make it. And we've already and they're you know basically, um, I think most people by rankings would would say New England and Pittsburgh are the better teams, but KC essentially has the tiebreaker over both of them, right? Right, right. right. And they haven't looked. Oh no, quite- Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Beat Pittsburgh KC. beat KC. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry about that, but they, KC's got the uh, tiebreaker over New England. Mm-hmm. So KC is a, for for my money, KC is one of the most fun pro teams to watch in the last couple of years. Like all yeah. of a sudden, I'm this big Chiefs fan. I found myself yelling a couple of weeks ago, "Go Chiefs or get it done, Chiefs!" I've never yeah. yelled that in my life. They're just they're playing. I mean, Alex Smith, you know, come on. Yeah. But, 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 but do, do, do you look at them and say? Uh, I mean, obviously they've looked more impressive than they thought we would. But I watched that game against Denver, and KC did not win that game. Denver no, they, lost. Uh, yeah, they that couldn't. Game. They couldn't stop Denver. It's, it's a yeah. it's an odd thing. I'm, I'm talking more about the offensive side of the yeah, ball. Yeah. And, and I, so I don't have that much faith in them, but. To watch them offensively is is a real joy. Yeah, no, that's and, true. And I don't often say that about the NFL these days. So, speaking of the NFL, I think we might have a few games to pick. Moneyball matchups. All right, this is the time of the week that we took take a look at the slate and pick some games. Are there games out there that you think are especially interesting? Games that you think you might have an edge, be able to bet. What's on your mind as you look at NFL slate this weekend? Well, so I guess the one kind of game that's the most interesting, I think, is Chiefs Cowboys. Just following on like what we were talking about before. I mean, it turns. I mean, looking at the slate this week, there's not a lot of. 
I guess, <laughs> really kind of great matchups between good teams. I think the Chiefs-Cowboys is kind of the obvious one. <clears throat> So Vegas the, has the, 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 line, that, the line there is a pick'em. Yeah, was which that I'm before a, Zeke was Zeke, assuming Zeke is playing or not playing? I don't have the. Latest. I think that was assuming he was playing. Okay. So now that yeah. he's not playing, it'll be interesting to see how much the line moves in that game. Well, you know, they should be getting three points as home field thereabouts. Yeah. And so if it's and having the so 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 basically having it as pick, so having KC be about three point favorites on neutral field, I think I would I, I would kind of go with that. I think. Maybe because of the Zeke thing, now you've got maybe an edge. I think that KC has got to be probably favored in that mm-hmm. without Zeke Oyalad in there. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I mean, as you know, Alfred Morris is not a is certainly a more than capable backup, but he's not going to be the same. We tend to over. We have found that you tend to overrate the impact of any one injury outside of quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. That we focus on it and we think yeah. it makes a bigger difference than it actually does. So the line has moved to KC minus one. So they're in Dallas. They're they're minus one. So that's the market saying they're about a four point better team. Than the Cowboys, but I would caution. As good a player as, as Zeke is, I'd caution a little bit about overreacting yeah. against the to the injury. Yeah, so that was one of the games that caught my eye. The other one is it's not that this is that great a game, but I mean it's kind of a do or die game. Is you know the Raiders at the Dolphins, and so you know the Raiders at least preseason were one of the sexy picks. Remember last year, one could have argued they may have ended up with a higher seed than New England. Oh yeah, I mean Derek coming Carr into not... this season, they were kind of the, the the favorite pick to knock off New England. Correct, and so now they're sitting there with a three and five record. You certainly don't want to go to three and six. Yeah. Um, and they're playing at the Dolphins. You know, the Dolphins, I understand, were a little bit sellers in the market. And the Dolphins have been very uneven. But the Dolphins are four and three. The Raiders are favored by three, which means neutral. But this really is. I mean, if the Dolphins all of a sudden go to five and three, you're saying, well, why can't they be a wild card team in the playoffs? There's mm-hmm. no reason why you couldn't yeah. believe that. And that would mean the Raiders would essentially be eliminated, if you'd like, at three and six. I mean, it's extremely unlikely that they would make the playoffs from a yeah, three no, and that's six right. position. And I, I, the only reason I would I would sort of caution against getting particularly hyped about Miami is this again trade they did almost says to me that they don't internally believe that they're contenders, right? But right. either way, it's just an. Or interest- they want to get rid of him for some. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But to me, it's just an interesting game because it could significantly. Well, Kay talks about this all the time. This is a game that could significantly increase the Dolphins' probability of making the playoffs, and it could significantly decrease the Raiders' probability of making the playoffs. That's mm-hmm. why that game is interesting to me, despite I'm not a Raiders or a Dolphins mm-hmm. fan. So one you, by that logic, one that is interesting to me is Ravens at Titans. They are both contenders in the wild card races. They're gonna. They're, this is kind of a put up or shut up week. It's it's really bummed about the Flacco injury last weekend with that cheap shot from the Dolphins. I was a little and surprised there was not a suspension coming I, out of that. I but. totally expected that. Um, no line yet because we don't know Flacco's health. But the Titans are going up against this really stout defense. Mariota, um, it's always interesting and fun to, to see what, what he can do. But I, I believe in the Ravens' defense. Without Flacco, you, it's hard to believe in their offense. But those two teams... This is the time of year where if you're going to actually be a contender for the playoffs, yeah. one of them has to start separate. Very similar game to Raiders at Dolphins in the sense that it's a meaningful game, very meaningful game for both teams. Mm-hmm. Very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Interesting game. All right, guys. So much to talk about. So much to watch. Good, fun time of year. Enjoy Game 7 especially. Go Astros, by the way. Dad Gummit, i got to say it. I want to <laughs> see those boys do it. Um, and then we've got one of the best slates on college football, on the college football side, Saturday anyway, as we've had all year long. So, for the whole crew here, Cade, Eric, Shane, for Maddie Doss, our producer, Danielle Bruno, sound engineer. Appreciate your listening. We're here every Wednesday, 8 to 10. Come back and join us to talk sports analytics. Between now and then, 
Enjoy your sports.